Well, I want to welcome you if you're visiting. Um, we've been studying the book of Exodus for oh, about a year and a half now. And without going into a great detail of review, quite simply, here we are. Um, God, after calling Moses to lead his covenant people out of Egypt, he calls them to the foot of Mount Sinai. Of course, that's where he gave his law. He calls Moses to the top of the mountain. He's there for 40 days to receive instruction as regards uh, the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle. Chapter five, verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 9, uh, the Lord commands Moses to build a tabernacle precisely according to the pattern, God says, that I will give. And the reason for uh, such precision is that he, we read in chapter 25, verse 8, will dwell among his people. He will be present in a way that he's never been present with his people before. And he's reestablishing, beloved, by way of reminder, that which was lost in Eden, and that is holy ground. Holy ground on earth, that is God, wherever he dwells, is holy with his people. And God designed all of it in a way to reveal a deep spiritual truth about his divine character. That's what all this is for. They would learn about themselves, they would learn about their God, they would learn about their desperate need through the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle proper was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, made up of two compartments, the holy place, and then the most holy place. And remember that the interior of the tabernacle was to be emblematic of heaven on earth. That was the the, the purpose of its design. Um, Commentators for centuries Um, have noticed the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, that is, regarding this instruction. It occurs seven times in chapters 25 to 31. The first six concern the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings, and the last one has to do with keeping the Sabbath. And that pattern, beloved, aids us in marking the connection between a seven-day creation and the construction of the tabernacle. Because both include six creative acts, followed by the command of seventh-day rest. Scholar uh, P.J. Kearney, he goes so far as to argue, I like this, by the way, that chapters 25 to 40 as a whole correspond in great detail to the opening chapters of Genesis. Okay, follow this. He says chapters 25 to 31, that is the details given of the tabernacle and its furnishings, correspond to creation. Chapter 2 and chapter, chapter 32 and chapter 33, the golden calf incident, corresponds to the fall. Whereas chapters 34 to 40 are restoration. But more importantly than that is that this small meeting space corresponds to the condescending grace of of Almighty God. I mean, this is a window 
into the heart of God himself. That he would condescend. This is, this is infinite almighty God. Condescends to dwell in a literal tent to meet with his finite sinful people. Now, ultimately, as I said at the outset, this all points to Jesus Christ who will come and tabernacle among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything was created through Him. And the Word, Jesus, John 1, became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. He dwelt in a tent of flesh to be with His people. So, Israel, at this point, was looking through these shadows and types to the reality that was yet to come. Jesus Christ has come. He fulfilled everything that the tabernacle promised. He came to finally and fully reveal God to us. He came to make peace between God and us. He came to reconcile God to us and us to God. He's provided reconciliation through the sending of his son, who the second person of the Godhead lowered himself, condescended to indwell a human body. The God-man. He is God's ultimate tabernacle. He is God's absolute temple. And only in him will we have the presence of God granted to us, for he alone, Jesus, is the gateway to God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one what? No one comes to the Father except through me. All roads of religion do not lead to God, beloved. Jesus said there is a way that's broad. All the roads of religion are broad, and they lead to destruction. But straight is the way, and narrow is the gate. That leads to everlasting life. And he is the gate itself. Now, the furnishing that will hold our attention this morning reveals to us how that access is made for us. And, and how we are accepted before God. Okay, so follow me in on this. Surrounding the tabernacle was a courtyard. And it was fenced in with curtains. And that courtyard measured 150 feet long by 70 feet wide. There was one entryway. See the correlation here? There was one entryway into the courtyard. And the first thing you would see was this bronze altar that we read about in chapter 27. So this morning, beloved, I want to make a few comments as regards the description of this bronze altar, its size and its parts, and then I want to spend the rest of our time um, looking at the spiritual application of the altar itself and how it pointed forward to God providing redemption for us. Okay, and the three spiritual points of application are this. Number one, which we'll get to in a while, uh, the altar shows us the wages of sin, Secondly, it reveals the nature of God in both justice and in mercy. And then thirdly, uh, it reveals the means of our approach to God and the eternal destiny of man. We'll get to those points momentarily. 
But first, let's look at this bronze altar. You know what this really was, quite literally? This was a divinely appointed barbecue grill. I mean, literally. This is to offer up sacrifices to Almighty God. The altar of bronze was called uh, different things, as you read in the Old Testament. It's called the altar of sacrifice. It's also called the altar of burnt offering. It's also uh, referred to as the outer altar. And that is to distinguish it from the altar of incense inside the holy place. Inside the tent of meeting. Of which only the priests were allowed in there. Common people of Israel were not allowed in there. So uh, this altar would have been the first thing you see when you come into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Its dimensions, seven and a half foot square by four and a half feet high. It was made of bronze. That is, it was made of acacia wood that was covered with bronze, which is a mixture of copper and tin. It could endure a great amount of heat. So they're instructed to cover it, cover this acacia wood with bronze uh, because uh, it would not have a tendency to melt. Now, within the tabernacle, as you recall, uh, the furnishings there were made of pure gold. We looked at those, or a couple of those so far. Inside the holy place, they were made of pure gold, which typified heaven itself, symbolizing royalty, because God himself is royal. He is royalty. Now, the pedestals of the tent uh, that held up the posts, they were made of silver, representing where heaven meets the earth. And then here in the courtyard where the tabernacle actually, actually touched the ground it was made of bronze. So the highest heavens, the holy place, was characterized by gold. The heavenly firmament, you know, space and the universe and so on, it was characterized by silver. And then earthly things, they're characterized by bronze. Now remember back in chapter 22, God instructed Moses to instruct the people of Israel when they built an altar, it is to be an altar of earth. Uncut stones upon which this bronze frame would sit. And beyond it was a bronze basin. So the priests would provide the sacrifice there and before they went into the holy place, they would go to the bronze basin, which in other parts of scripture is referred to as the sea. And they would wash there all the blood off themselves and ceremonially also clean themselves before they went into the holy place. Very symbolic. So you have gold, silver, and bronze. And the closer the Israelites were to God, the more precious the metal. Gold, silver, bronze. So here you have bronze that that covered this box. It's, It's a bronze grate. It's basically a big grill. And it was opened so that oxygen could flow and it would keep also the ashes from smothering the fire. There were bronze utensils, notice, for for stoking and turning coals. We read about pans to catch the ashes. Even the ashes given up in this holy sacrifice weren't to fall on the ground. They were to be caught. Calvin makes an interesting comment on this. He says this. Calvin says, it's so that they should not fall about upon the ground and be trodden underfoot 
but that reverence might be inculcated even towards the very remnants of their holy things. Remember in John, uh, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about hypocritical judgment, and then he goes on to talk about making a right and proper judgment. He says, do not give what is precious to swine. Do not cast precious pearls before swine, lest they trample over them to get to you in order to devour you. And don't get of what is holy to the dogs, which means you have to make a judgment. Who's the dogs and who are the hogs? What's holy, what's not? And the idea there that Jesus expresses is that even the priests in the day when they give sacrifices wouldn't give, perhaps if there were leftover bones, even to a wild scavenger dog. For it was given up as a holy sacrifice. So here, you you, you have things even catching these ashes, and that's basically what, what Calvin there alludes to. You had pots for for carrying ashes. You have shovels to move coals about. And you would move those coals into the altar of incense to provide fire in there as well. Notice there's basins. This would be to catch the blood from the sacrifices. There's forks, or as the New American Standard puts it, which I prefer, flesh hooks. Because some of the offering would be eaten, remember, by the priests. Some of the offering would be taken home and eaten by the family of the one offering it up. So flesh hooks. You have fire pans to carry coals. So as Israel would pick up the tabernacle and pick up all these furnishings carried with the poles by, by the priests, the, this fire was to burn continually so you would have pans that kept the fire burning. It never went out. And then, of course, rings inserted or or rings attached to insert these poles for a a particular priestly line to carry these things up and over their shoulders. Notice there's four horns. Four horns. On the four corners, there's a horn. Scripture defines horns as power, strength, like, like the horns of a bull. It's very symbolic throughout all of Scripture, and we see the symbolism of power by way of swords show up in the book of Revelation. You recall that? So there's four horns, and then the purpose of the horns would, to bring, would be to bring in your sacrifice and bind it to those horns. You would tie down the sacrifice on these horns. For instance, Psalm 118, verse 27. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now, later in Israel's history, this is, this is great, people that were accused of crimes would run in and grab onto the horns of the altar. A sign of mercy, don't touch me. Listen to Adonijah, 1 Kings. Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he's laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he'll not put his servant to death with the sword. He's holding on there in hope that mercy will be shown to him, that he'll be preserved from judgment. You see the picture being drawn here, beloved? So later on in Israel's history, there was an association of refuge connected to these, the horns of the altar. 
Beautiful picture, isn't it? So for any Israelite who walked into this courtyard, the courtyard of the tabernacle, there would be this bronze altar. This is the first thing you would see, and it was constantly burning there in the middle of the courtyard. And this, beloved, taught Israel, and it teaches us the need for satisfaction for sins. What's that biblical word? Starts with a P? Ah, propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction. God's wrath must be propitiated. Now, in Leviticus 6, the law of the burnt offering was to be perpetual. In other words, this thing was to burn 24-7. The priests would fan fan the flame. They would stoke the coals to keep it burning. Yet we read in Leviticus 9, that the very first sacrifice that was offered up on that altar, it wasn't started by the hand torch of Moses or the match of a priest. It was ignited by God himself. The original ignition. Original takeoff. Look at this. Leviticus Leviticus 9.24, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, what'd they do? They shouted and they fell on their face. Humility. See, fire is a picture of God himself, beloved. God is fire. He's holy. He's distinct from us, beloved. He is not your pal. Jesus is not your homeboy or your buddy. He is holy, holy Holy. He, the scripture says, is a consuming fire, and his justice must be satisfied both against sin and the sinner. Why the sinner? Because they're the ones who sin. Amen? You don't judge sin without judging the sinner. It's impossible. It's foolish thinking of our day. So the bronze altar here now reveals for us the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. This is the very first visible fixture and symbol to the people of Israel, and that's what stood out. The wages of sin is death. So even outside the fenced courtyard, the Israelites would see smoke rising continually. Now, the fence around the courtyard was seven and a half feet tall. So in order to even get a glimpse at the the tabernacle, you could see it if you step back a bit because it was 15 feet high. So you could see the holy place, or the most holy place, 15 by 15 by 15, if you could look in there like this. Right? Smoke rising. You could stand outside the perimeter and, and hear the sounds of sacrifice, the smells of sacrifice. So the animal, he'd be brought into the courtyard with a rope, no doubt, You would take in the animal, and you would likely take the rope and wrap it around one of the horns of the altar. The priest would take it. They'd lay it up on the altar, tie it down. But think about this animal walking in. He would smell the blood. He would sense something, hmm, I'm I'm about ready to be a barbecued sandwich. So he'd be nervous. 
And here you are taking the sacrifice in, probably from your own flock. There's some emotion attached there. That's the idea of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. Spotless, without blemish. Not one with a jacked up leg or a missing eye. It was a spotless lamb. Amen? It costs. So they would tie the animal down. Leviticus tells us that the worshiper would lay his hands upon the animal and slit its throat. The blood would be taken by the priest. He would sprinkle it on the side of the altar. With some sacrifices, the blood would be sprinkled also on the altar of incense inside the holy place. And then once a year, blood would also be sprinkled where? In the most holy place on the Day of Atonement upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the very presence of God Himself. And the mercy seat was a golden lid that had two angels carved out, covered in gold, looking down, not looking up, looking down upon the mercy of God. Because underneath the seat was the Ten Commandments, which the people had what? Broken. They're lawbreakers. They deserve judgment. But it's covered by mercy, sprinkled with blood. You see the picture? So the sinner was to, to recognize that this sacrifice was a substitute dying in his or her place. So the bronze altar was a picture of death and what sin deserves. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins, Scripture says, must die. New, New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Repeatedly, beloved, they would witness this. The due penalty for my, my sin is death. Friends, God did not take sin lightly then, and he certainly doesn't take it lightly now. He takes sin very seriously. Sin deserves punishment. Let me ask you this. Are you aware, beloved, this morning that your sin deserves punishment? We deserve hell. This lady came into our house not long ago. I was going through some trouble. Said to my wife, I just don't deserve this. Christian woman, I just don't deserve this. And my, my, my wife said, no, with all due respect, I understand what you're going through is tough, but... In reality, if you understand grace, all we really do deserve is hell. It's what we deserve. We're going to see the mercy of God. We see mercy here. This is what we see. But it makes him no less just because he is a righteous, holy God. So do you, do you recognize this morning, beloved, that you deserve this? You recognize that God truly is holy, not, not a pal. Look at Romans 3. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. The glory of God, right? James 1.14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it's fully conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Now, the first death, if one is not in Christ, will eventually lead, ultimately lead to the second death. Notice, Revelation 21. For as, as for the cowardly, context those who flee the consequences of confessing Jesus Christ. The cowardly. The faithless. The detestable. 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the what? The second death. God cannot allow injustice or the unjust to enter his presence without his justice being unleashed and then satisfied. It must be satisfied. Therefore, once again, he must judge sin and the sinner. Now, there's a very foolish but common sentiment in our day in the modern evangelical community. And that is this. My God is a God of love. Don't leave here today and say, my God is a God of love, and he will not judge sinners in hell. He never punishes people for their sins. That's the God of the Old Testament, they say. My God is the God of the New Testament. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, King of kings, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, the idea in their minds is that God's love trumps his justice. That is a grave misunderstanding as to the nature of God. That's a grave mistake. Because without justice and mercy, reconciliation can never take place. God can't show mercy without his holy justice. No way. So the bronze altar teaches us about the nature of God and how we relate to him as both just and merciful. Beautiful picture, amen? Glorious. Next. The altar teaches us the nature of God as regards justice and mercy. Now, someone must satisfy God's holy, just wrath against sin and the sinner. The burnt altar teaches Israel about divine satisfaction before this holy, righteous God. Okay, a burnt offering. Okay, think about a burnt offering. The whole thing was consumed. We read in Scripture about the, the, the ascension offering, and that is the smoke would ascend symbolically, it would literally ascend, but symbolically into the nostrils of Almighty God as a pleasing what? Aroma. Now, on the Day of Atonement, two sacrifices would be made. Two kinds. One, the priest would lay his hands upon a goat, and that represented all the sins of Israel, and then the priest would, would drive that goat out into the wilderness. And the other would be slaughtered. So here's a picture of both propitiation, vertical, the slaughtered lamb, and expiation, the removal of sins, the scapegoat. Propitiation, vertical, expiation, horizontal. God's wrath satisfied and sins expiated. You see that? Vertical, horizontal. God shows us he's merciful by providing animals here as a substitution. It shows us that God is merciful by providing a priesthood to offer up the sacrifices. We see God's mercy by him providing a priesthood that stood as an intercessor, a mediator. A representative. You need one to stand in your place. You cannot stand in the place, in the holy presence of God on your own. You'll be consumed in his justice. You need an intercessor. 
one who represents you rightly. That's what the priesthood represented. So the bronze altar here not only shows us the wages of sin, but it also shows us a way to approach God. That's the picture being drawn. Thankfully, God doesn't only say, you're a sinner, so your sentence is death. You know, he could have had a bronze spike there. Just (laughs) slaughter the lamb, pick it up, throw it in a pit. No, he doesn't do that. The, the animal would be slaughtered, okay? meaning it would be prepared. It would be divided up. It would be offered up to the living God. That's the picture. It's being prepared to be received by God. You, this morning, beloved of Christ, are being prepared, that is, sanctified, to stand in his presence. You're already justified. You're already declared free from all blame. That is your position in Christ. Does your practice match your position? Your position is sinless because Christ stands in your place. Does your practice match that? Of course not. That's why we're being sanctified under his word this morning. Prepared to meet him. You die today, you'll go be with him like that if you're in Christ because of your position. And then you'll be made perfectly holy then. You're only declared holy now. Amen? Amen? Look, God also says this, Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. (laughs) Turn what? Away from your sin and towards the Redeemer. That's what repentance is. Amen? That's what repentance is. So the bronze altar also teaches us here about our means of approach to God. And that is this. We practice it this morning. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Now, the animal that was brought as a substitute was to be brought with a heart of what? Penitence. The sinner would confess his sin and have a heart of repentance. That means turning from. Because you know, sacrifice apart from a contrite heart was the scripture calls a vain what? Offering. Listen to the words of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 1, or verse 11, chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Because to him it's hypocritical. When you spread out your hands, praise the Lord. (sighs) With an unrepented heart, I will hide my eyes from you. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. David, Psalm 51, listen to him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Ongoing brokenness. Ongoing confession. How many times do you confess to the Lord every day? Think about it. Don't answer. Just think. Yesterday, I don't think I went an hour. I kid you not. 
well, I thought, you know, the pastor should be the most sanctified in the congregation. A guy told me that once. I said, what, compared to a 90-year-old brother who's been walking with Christ for longer than I've been alive? I'm supposed to be more sanctified than him? I can't find that in the Bible anyhow, but just our thinking process as we grow in grace and understand his mercy and his love for us, we're more tender and aware of our sin. Or we should be. It's not to make me out as any great saint, let me tell you that, but only a reflection of a wretched sinner. Wretched who by God's grace understands his mercy. Thank God for the grace of God. So confession and repentance is necessary for God's people to this very day. True sorrow and repentance of sin is a lost practice in most churches today. To have a time of confession is so foreign. Foreign. See, confession means to admit. Confess and repent. Repent means to change your thinking. Right? Yesterday I was in my backyard. I thought of something. It was, it was against somebody or something. I said, convicted right away. Now, a lot of people think, hey, man, you're justified by grace through faith. That's right. So you should just dwell on the cross. Well, now and again you should. But if I'm convicted at that moment, what comes to my mind? Yeah, the cross for sure. But do not think like that, whatever that is. His word comes to me because God chastens who? Those he loves. It's a form of chastisement. That's what a loving father does. So you confess. Then then I have to change my thinking. Why? Because I can. I have the Holy Spirit. So now I can meditate on what's good and true and right and just. Instead of the sinful thought. So it's confession and repentance, which means to turn around, go the other way, change your thinking. Now, repentance and confession initially occurs at conversion. Amen? When you were born again of the Spirit, you became a believer, you repented, you turned, you turned from sin, you turned to Christ. You confessed. But it doesn't stop there. Right? Some Christians say, hey man, You just believe. No. The scripture says you repent and believe. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After John died, Jesus came. And we read, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen, thank you. Repent and believe. Paul, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. That is initial at conversion, but as a Christian who's indwelt with the Holy Spirit, it never ends. I'm just always repenting. It's the perpetual life of the Christian saved by grace to continually be repenting and confessing. Because I'm justified. Because I am most certainly going to heaven. Because I'm saved. Thank you. Mere sorrow for the consequence of my sin 
anybody sorrowful because of the consequence of sin. Amen? Anyone can be sorrowful for the pain that our own sin brings. But the Bible calls that worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is connected to repentance, faith and trust, because it's, 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 it has salvation. You know, in 1 John 1.9, we read, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That the context there is not the one-time, once-and-for-all positional forgiveness we receive by God through Christ. That has to do with ongoing paternal forgiveness. Relationship. Fatherly. Relational. You know, many times, beloved, let me give you this word of encouragement. How often do we have incorrect feelings um, about what God really wants as regards my sin? Sometimes we have false thinking in that we believe God wants us to merely suffer because we still sin. Is that true? No, it's not true. You know, he just sits up there on his throne wanting me to be miserable due to my ongoing sins. That's not the case, beloved. He does, of course, discipline those he loves. And the feeling of misery while you're still unrepentant is there because of his love, not because of his wrath. Amen? It's a love act of the Holy Spirit to bring us out of darkness, whatever that is, and back into the light. Because God wants us to understand that, look, that sin will not satisfy you, John Leader. The only thing that will satisfy you, let me rephrase that, the only person that will satisfy you is me. So I want you to want me as much as I want you. That's what he wants. King David, after he sinned by way of adultery and murder with Bathsheba, and then had... Uriah killed, murdered, went about a year without repenting and confessing of that sin. And he describes it like this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So God's desire isn't simply to make his people miserable, but again, to see that he desires you and wants the best for you. Okay, you get that? So if you're ever confused and you're thinking uh, erroneously, get back to the scripture and understand how God truly thinks of you, and he gives you the power to repent and confess. And move on. So now the ultimate reality, back to Old Covenant, Israel and this bronze altar. Ultimately, the reality was these animals could not take away the punishment due for their sins. Again, it was a type. It was a shadow that pointed forward. The shadow was cast forward to the cross that was to come. You see, animals can't take away sin because it is mankind who has sinned. So therefore, an animal can't possibly justify God's wrath against sin in the sinner. Amen? It was a type. It pointed to something greater than itself. The only possible substitute that could be sacrificed in the place of sinful man is a man. But not a mere man. 
He had to be a perfectly righteous man. We need a divine substitute, in other words. Fully God, fully man. This is what we needed. This is what this pointed forward to. No mere creature could possibly endure the just punishment of Almighty God because the just punishment of Almighty God is eternity under His wrath, which the Bible calls what? Hell. Where Jesus said there is wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So for a finite creature to sin against an eternal, infinite creator earns for him or her an eternal, infinite wrath. How did Jesus then, who spent six hours on the cross, three hours in darkness, as a man, how did he possibly pay for eternity in hell in that period of time? Simply. Because as the second person of the Godhead, he is infinite. Infinite. So the infinite Son of God bore the eternal wrath of God upon himself, providing true substitution. Making true atonement so that you could be at one with God again, at one mint. Providing reconciliation. Bridging the chasm between us and God. So as the infinite Son of God He endured eternity on the cross. Only the divine Son of God could endure that eternal, infinite wrath in a finite, temporal span. See the picture. That's how He paid for your sin which deserves eternal wrath because He's infinite. You're finite. So no, no man, no mere man, let alone an animal, could atone. Jesus, John said, the the, the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lambs and the goats pointed forward to him. He provides propitiation, the satisfaction of God and his just wrath, and provides expiation, the removal of your sins as far as the east is from the west. Satisfied Father, Removal of sins by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the, the overarching message of the, of the altar here is simply that this altar visibly drove home the point that every worshiper in Israel for 1,500 years would witness that you cannot come into God's presence without sacrifice. And He provides the sacrifice. See, this tells us God is not only just, but what? The justifier. Very theologically minded clan here. He's just and the justifier. What does the author of Hebrews say? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, because life is in the blood. That's the point that the bronze altar makes. When you come into the temple courtyard and you see the altar, you're reminded, because I'm a sinner and God is holy, I cannot fellowship with Him. It's impossible without the shedding of blood. So the bronze altar here reveals also the eternal destiny of all men. 
either towards eternal judgment or eternal rest. Eternal rest. So the fact is there's no communion, there's no fellowship, there's no atonement. And that's a universal truth since the fall. Adam and Eve were driven out. They drove out of the garden by God, but not before he covered them in what? Animal skins. And to have animal skins, what had to take place? Death. Bloodshed. He covered their guilt and their shame, also foreshadowing the one who would come, who cloaks us in his righteous robes, Jesus Christ. So the the, the glorious reality of this altar points forward to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, verse 10, look at this. Now, we think of Jesus as our great high priest, amen? amen? Because he is. But you know what else he is? He's our altar. Look at that. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, they have no right to eat. You want to go back to types and shadows? You have no participatory right here. Lotus. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice or sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We have an altar, and that altar is Jesus Christ. You know why there's no altars in Protestant churches? It's not because we don't have an altar. It's because we do have an altar. And it's the one who came and lived and died and rose again who ascended. He's the altar. He's our altar. Now, to wrap up, the fire that burned on the altar, it doesn't represent hell. The fire that burned on the altar represents God's holiness. And he was consuming by way of that sacrifice, it's a picture of Jesus or God Almighty consuming his people, not to destroy them, consuming them in himself. See this? He consumes his people. He takes in his people. This ascension offering, right? A, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Sacrifice has been made, so he takes his people to himself. He consumes them. He consumes you. You're a consumed people. He brings us, his redeemed creatures, into communion with him. You have a union with God through Christ. Amen? Amen. It's an everlasting union. Can it be broken? No. No. At the same time, we have communion. Can we mess it up? Yes. Does he break our union because of our messed up communion? No. No. He'll chasten you if you're his. But he won't forsake you because Christ was forsaken for you. So Jesus offered himself up as that pleasing aroma on this altar and now as the sacrifice once and for all given. What does that make us? Hebrews 12. I mean uh, Romans 12. Living what? Sacrifices. You know, it's been said by someone, if not a hundred. The problem with a living sacrifice is they can crawl off the altar. (laughs) See, now the fire represented is the fire of the Holy Spirit. 
He indwells us. He's refining us. He's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's preparing us to meet our maker and our redeemer. Making us more like Christ. He leads us. He leads a triumphal procession. He's going through the streets of Rome, so to speak. This is the picture Paul had. A procession of victory. Listen. Procession. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Where? Everywhere. You work in the school district of San Diego. Everywhere. You're a nurse at Sharp. Sharp or Sharps? Sharp. A fragrance. (laughs) You work in the prison. Fragrant. That place stinks, too. Right? I've been in prisons. Serving. (laughs) You laugh. Fragrance. Notice. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice now. To one, a fragrance from death to death. They hate the gospel. They hate Christ. So they hate those who are Christ's. At, to one, another, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You meet them all. Perhaps the gospel was, was, you despised its scent at one time. But he changed your heart, amen? It's a sweet-smelling aroma. Now you are that aroma because you're in him. He leads the procession. So in this bronze altar, we're reminded that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, all this stuff points forward to him. That's why I said in the service earlier, Old Testament saints, they only had types and shadows. We have the noonday sun, man. He's come. Why don't we have this kind of fervent desire to be with God's people on the Lord's day? Like you all do, because you're here. We have it all. God has provided the substitutionary sacrifice on the altar, and it's Jesus Christ. Verse 14, chapter 9 of Hebrews. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Spotless sacrifice. (laughs) Purify our conscience from dead works so as to serve the living God. Beautiful. So when we look at the bronze altar... We see the sacrifice placed there, it was consumed. You know what Jesus, what the scripture said of Jesus? Father, zeal, this is after Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And so much so that he was consumed by God's wrath on the cross as a sweet-smelling aroma to his father. Proven and validated by way of his resurrection given to us by way of the Holy Spirit to live as living sacrifices, not in our own strength, not in our power. I will fail if I walk in my own power. I'll fail if I preach in my power. I'll fail if I pray in my power. I'll fail if I try to be a good husband in my power. Amen, honey. (laughs) But by the power of the Spirit. He's the fire. So, 
to close. If you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you know Christ, rest in Him. If you don't know Christ, let me tell you this. Guilt cannot be absolved by man's attempt to forget. Man's guilt cannot be absolved by man's attempt to try and bury guilty feelings or bury guilty facts. You cannot hide. You can run, but you cannot hide. And on the day of judgment, you will not stand before God and give any attempt to blame your mama or your daddy or your circumstances, your upbringing. You can't plead victim because, you know, uh, my addictions are because I'm a victim. Wrong. This God of the Old Testament, revealed here under the Old Covenant with Israel, is both just and merciful, and He requires punishment for sins and the sinner. Yet what He shows us here is that He provides the substitute for sin and sinners. And it points to his son, the sinless son of God. Now, remember, if you're not here, I mean, if you're here not a believer, remember this. If you're not here, if you're not here, wake up. <laughs> you're here, okay, and you're full of guilt. I don't care what the sin is. Women are crushed under the guilt of abortion, for instance. And they think it's unes- inescapable. You're wrong. You know the horns on the altar? You come and you grab them. But the horns of the altar are Jesus Christ himself because he was pierced. He was bound on a cross, his hands and feet pierced, bound to bear the wrath of his father. You run to him. You let him absolve your guilt. It will only come by way of faith and trust and Jesus Christ who's the only way, the truth, the life. And you will realize all of your sins have been rightly propitiated and equally expiated. Buried in the depth of the sea. Never to be held against you. When God, God remembers them, but they were all in his son. So Christ's scars bear the remembrance, but they're forgotten as regards every being held against you to accuse you. So run to the horns of the altar, it's Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved.